Welcome to Cultivate the Ordinary Podcast, curious conversations for the anxious, frustrated, dejected, and bored. I'm Travis. And I'm Jesse. So often, we're held captive by screens, schedules, and media that's mind-numbing and polarizing. This leaves us seeing dimly through a fog. We want to spark more imagination and a better awareness of God's presence in the everyday. Join us on a fun journey of discovery and curiosity as we look at the ordinary through the lenses of joy, wonder, beauty, and hope. Welcome to the podcast today. Really excited to tackle this topic. It's it's a big one. It's full of stories. It's full of miracles. It's full of God's presence. And I'm getting to do it with my brother, Dan. Um, and so what we're going to talk about is the car accident from 2009 that completely changed the trajectory of our family. It was full of suffering. It was full of all kinds of twists and turns. And, um, and, and a, a big feature of it is about Jeremy, um, what he's went through with a traumatic brain injury, his road to recovery. But two of my other brothers were also in the car wreck as well. And, and Dan had significant... Um, a significant role in both what he experienced and how he experienced God through that. And his story is very intertwined with Jeremy's. And so that's kind of the setup of, of what this episode is about. Um, Dan is an incredible storyteller. Um, so you're going to hear that in this. Um, he was a, a youth pastor, has been a pastor. He's in seminary now. Um and he'll, he'll, he'll tell more about kind of what he's doing and, and about his life and family. But, yeah, looking forward to this, um, walking through this together. And, uh, yeah, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, and, uh, thanks yeah. for having me on, Trav. Uh, yes, so sir. good. To, uh, this is my first podcast, so I'm kind of nervous here. But, um, <laughs> no, I'm just – I'm super stoked uh, that you and Jesse started this. It's um, – you know, I've, I've listened to some of the episodes, and they're just engaging. They're creative thought-provoking, funny, I mean, just all <laughs> the above. So, yeah, man, I just I just hope our conversation today can keep the momentum going. But, uh, yeah, just look forward to see how God's going to use this podcast. Awesome, man. Well, so you're in seminary now, correct? And so what what is kind of your kind of vision for your future? And then tell us a little bit about your own family and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like Trav said, uh have, have been in pastoral roles, uh, prior to, to my seminary journey. Yeah. So right now it's graduate school at seminary. I'm going to reform theological seminary up in Charlotte and pursuing the masters of divinity. So I am, uh, deep entrenched in the books and Greek and <laughs> all the above. So, um, I'm, I'm having to, to really, uh, yeah, just give, give a lot of my time and focus in, into the study. Um, it's been, it's been incredible. I've, I've loved the journey. Um, just being able to sit under, um, professors that, uh, through their experience and, um, all that they have to bring the wisdom has been, um, amazing. I'm surrounded in some of my classes from people all over the world. Mm. Um, you know, guy in front of me from Germany, have a friend from India, mm -hmm. people from Africa. So God has really, really drawn the nations, um, um, to the classes that I'm a part of in seminary. So I'm, I'm being challenged and stretched in new ways, um, that I never had been before. Um, <clears throat> we have four, four kids, uh, 10, eight, four, and three. 
Uh, so we have a lively household just like mm-hmm. you and uh, just trying to be a good dad, a good, um, yeah, just um, enjoying, trying to enjoy life in, in these kind of crazy years, but mm-hmm. they're so fun. It's such an adventure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have your hands full, but yeah, they have a awesome crew. And uh, so, uh, so our own family, Dan and I, the family that we're, we're siblings in, we have uh, it's five of us dudes and then a sister whose staff is probably toughest of us all, hmm. had to be. Yep. Where do you rank yourself as best looking among all the guys? I mean, do you, do you, do you have like a fair... Well, of course, <laughs> one. I mean, I mean <laughs> No, it, uh, it, it is funny. Um, middle of the pack, or are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are some that are less uh, glamorous looking than others, but um, oh, we're changing the, too. Time, time hasn't been good to some of us. Uh. No, um, it, it is funny when um, I, you know, introduce a, a brother or something. I'm around uh, somebody who's never met, <clears throat> like let's say you or Ryan or Brett. Their first thing is like you sound exactly the same. I yeah. mean, you, your voice and your mannerisms, and of course, I don't, I don't see it that way. But uh, <laughs> we'll let your listeners be the judge of who has the better voice, even maybe in this. There yeah. will be. I feel like now, now you saying that's making me want to deepen my voice just to try to. <laughs> well, I have a cold, so that's going to uh, help here. But <laughs> Johnny Cash here, but uh, well, yeah, we'll let the listeners decide. Um, and, uh, yeah, cool. So I, be, I thought before we kind of go into starting to kind of now unpack the story and kind of everything around Jeremy, um, we, uh, there, there's an old story that I think is really, it's funny and entertaining from our childhood that involves you and Jeremy. So he, Jeremy's the next, I guess, oldest after you. And then it goes Ryan and then. Brett. I forgot Brett. how many how many of us are there, but and Steph's right after me. So, but anyway, Dan had a um, loved you know Native American culture. We were from North Dakota and all this, and we're you know that was a big you know you just love. Yeah. So you're playing well when your cowboys don't with, give you video games. I mean, it you got to get pretty creative for right. a farm. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's a funny story that I think has just become legend now, especially with the little kids, <laughs> all the cousins. They want to hear the story, but. Yeah, long story short, me and Jeremy were out on the farm and, you know, bored to death. And, hey, what what should we do today? And let's let's just go play Cowboys and Indians. Um, well, it ended up being Indians versus Indians, I guess, tr- uh, rival war parties here. But uh, we're both wearing loincloths, uh, washcloths and belts. Yep, that's it. And um, I had oh, this wow. idea of creating this bow and arrow. So I'm in the, I'm in the woods. I get this uh, tree branch and I'm fashioning this, this uh, bone arrow, uh, found some good string. Anyways, I don't have an arrow to go with the bow. So I go into dad's um, dad's shop and I find one of his hunting arrows and um, thinking that's going to be a good idea. Um, have that. So I'm in the woods. Jeremy's coming towards me, you know, kind of doing his, ah, you know, mm-hmm. pounding his mouth, whatever. And I just pull that string back and I just let it go. Uh, not thinking, you know, it's going to go maybe 10 feet. That thing probably went 20 yards <sighs> and it 
hit Jeremy square in the mouth. I mean, as his hand is coming down, <laughs> that arrow right in the back of the throat, and it sticks in. And I'm I'm still stuck. scarred to this day. Stuck. Jeremy does a 180, runs back into the house, screaming with an arrow in his mouth. About 15 minutes later, my dad, I could just hear him, you know, you know opens the front door and hollering for my name, you know, get back here. And I'm in there just like, I just killed my brother. So I break my bone arrow and hide. And then, you know, the longer I wait in the woods, the more spankings I probably got. But um, anyways, that that's kind of the... the the, the tall tale oh of, my the, gosh. of the, the bone That's an epic story. And I, I'm, I'm picturing you then re- emerging back from the woods at whatever time you did. Still, like the shame <laughs> of what happened. And then you're in a loincloth on top cloth. of that. How would you ever come back from that? <laughs> yeah. The that... fact you've become who you are. Right. Despite, all, yeah, so, wow. Um, I was naked and afraid. Na- I just <laughs> say that. <laughs> okay, so... We're going to move now into the story and, and looking back at, at Jeremy's accident, Dan, Dan's accident, and our brother Ryan also was in that. Um, be, before that, and I may have said some of this, but so it happened in 2000, the summer of 2009. Dan will explain more. But to, basically to this day, Jeremy is um, what we would kind of say in a way trapped in his body. He suffered a severe traumatic brain injury. He needs 24-7 care, um, and he's in between a bed and a wheelchair that's his daily existence. So that's kind of what left him. The accident completely changed the trajectory of his life. Um, but as you're going to hear more in this podcast and, and throughout a theme of, if you know, Jeremy joy is probably the, the kind of almost the greatest thing that's apparent from his life. And I, I want to set up this whole story with a profound quote from the writer Frederick Buechner on joy, because I feel like the way he describes joy is the way you're going to hear Dan, uh, uh, well, really Jeremy and his, his way of seeing his life, uh, the lens he sees it through. So here's Buechner. Joy is a mystery because it can happen anywhere, anytime, even under the most unpromising circumstances, even in the midst of suffering with tears in its eyes. It's hard to not tell this story and see Jeremy's joy, but tell it with tears in your eyes and, you know, and at times probably laughter and all that. Like, that's a beautiful way that I, I think he captures joy in a different way. So, you know, like, kind of yeah. like Traff said, you know, <clears throat> this is a story of, of, of suffering, of, of pain, of, of grief, uh, of trial, of, of really, you know, in some ways, it's a story of how our entire family has had to process and navigate very difficult things, mm-hmm. uh, things that happened 15 years ago that, that still hurt us uh, today. There's still a lot of, a lot of deep evoked emotions. Um, and, and one of the ways I would, I would say to kind of set up what we're going to talk about today was, was, um, one of the lines that has stuck with me from an old pastor, uh, one of kind of my mentor pastors, his name is Robert Smith, Jr., uh, an old African-American pastor, just faithful brother, expositor of the word, professor, seminary, uh, at, a, at a seminary. But he, he said this, he said, when it comes to processing grief, he said, we can't take the elevator. We have to take the stairs. And I love that line because grief um, 
it, mm. it's it's long. It's mm. you can't just hit a button, boom, you're there, you've mm. arrived. It it's a it's a long process. And I would just say kind of in that same metaphor, you know, as a family, we we haven't we haven't had to carry this burden of grief alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ is in the stairwell with us mm-hmm. as a family. He has been for the last 15 years walking with us up the stairs mm. in this grief. Yeah. So, yeah, as we just kind of get to the story, uh, yeah, the, here are the stories Christ. And uh, we've, we have seen him shine in, in many, many ways. Yeah, and I would say one thing too, Trav, as, mm-hmm. as we just set up the story and, you know, as I've been even just looking back on the story and just kind of preparing for this podcast, a lot of emotions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Trav hit it right, um, you know, seeing Jeremy it just emanates with joy, mm-hmm. but both Trav and I <clears throat> and the rest of our family really processing a lot of grief. And I, I would know that, um, you know, when you think of this story um, for our family, it was a, it was a watershed moment. Um, I I often find ourselves when we're just talking as brothers and sisters, um, you know, going back and talking about past stories, they're either in two categories. They're either, was this before the accident Mm -hmm. or was this after the accident? And that Mm -hmm. just kind of shows how pivotal this um, story has been in the lives of, of all of our family and, and even to this day. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, it's a, a, a marker of our entire family's existence. So, um, so let's let's get into before we set up sort of that that fateful day in Montana. Tell us a little about Jeremy going into you know um, th- that summer or even before that. Like, who was Jeremy? What what was you know being f- close together and all that? Like. Set us up with Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy was one of my best friends. Um, he was the kindest, most compassionate guy that you could imagine. Um, he was a fierce competitor. Jeremy was an All-American runner, um, set records at college and high school. Um, so he was a fierce athlete by every metric. Um, one of the ways I would kind of quantify Jeremy is he was he's kind of what I call a, a one-to-go guy. You know, for me, I'm a little bit more calculated. Okay, one, two, three, four, go. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, one, two, I'm going. And um, and that was just symbiotic of, of how much he loved life, uh, how much he sought adventure. Um, he mm. had a deep, quiet inner strength more than anybody I ever knew. And I think mm. he got a lot of that from our dad. Uh, we'll talk about later. Um, but, but Jeremy had a, just a quiet, deep contentment and it, and a, just a deep power with, within him hmm. that, um, I always admired. Um, I think Jeremy was often, um, misunderstood by people, um, because of his quietness, but he was, um, and and all of this, as we'll see, really came to to help him even where he is right now in life, hmm. of how he gets through every day. But if there's one story, quick story that I would say that just summarizes who Jeremy was. So the summer that we were out there in 2009, we took a group of of us out to the Tetons. We went for a uh, a hike. It was a 14 mile hike in the Tetons, and um. 
I remember at the end of the hike, you know, people are kind of coming in, you know, we're, we're tired, we're weary, the fire's going and, uh, Jeremy's not here. Uh, he, he didn't arrive in camp. And, um, the, the next thing we know, um, this is maybe an hour and a half after we had all set up camp, it's dark out and we see two pairs of, of, um, or two headlamps off in the distance coming towards the camp. And, um, it was Jeremy. Jeremy was mm. with the last hiker to, to come to camp. She was, um, she was a girl that had never hiked before. This was a Mount Everest for her. And here's Jeremy st- staying back with her to get her to the destination. And, looking back on that, a lot of people didn't even appreciate. I mean, it's kind of, okay, we see them coming. Great. She's fine. But had Jeremy not been attentive uh, to to her and had sought her out and helped her, we might have had to call search and rescue. Hmm. But it was just, it was just a metaphor, I think, of who Jeremy was. Um, He could have been easily the first guy to camp. I mean, there's, you know, Mm -hmm. a bunch of guys hiking and what, whatever there's, there's an ego there. But I think for Jeremy to lay aside his own glory, to lay aside his own strength and prowess to, to really help serve mm-hmm. this girl was, I think just a symbol of who he was as a man. Mm, wow. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so that's a great setup to kind of us all remembering, you know, Jeremy before the accident. So, uh, and kind of his character traits that were already there. And, and, and like you said, we're going to then be part of him powering through what would happen next. So, um, you know, he, he also, I remember that looking back last part of this, the setup is he wrote a letter that I, I, I wish I had it in front of me. We have it somewhere, but basically he said something sort of, um, it would almost be prophetic of, something like I want God to use me however it will be. I, I I'm, I'm, I'm probably mm. botching a little bit, mm. but basically like whatever comes, I, that's what I want. Yeah. Not like I want God to, you know, ha- anyway, I mean, we could just, but so Dan, take us now into, yeah. you know, sort of, and I know you, this could be episodes of, of that day. Um, but, but the accident, but it, we're going to try to do it in more of a snapshot kind of a summary type of moments of what, what, what transpired. Mm. Yeah. So I think just to reorient ourselves here to the story, let's go back to Glacier National Park. Um, This is the summer of 2009. Uh, Four of us, uh, myself, Jeremy, our uh, brother, Ryan, and our friend, Scott, um, we all found ourselves um, at midnight on the High Line Trail in Glacier National Park. Uh, the next day, we were going to come back to West Yellowstone, where we were, um, it's kind of our home base for our ministry that summer. And I just remember looking out over the valley, all four of us, and the conversation that we had was, what would heaven be like? Mm-hmm. And um, little did we know that uh, the next day, heaven would be a very near reality. And again, we're we're in our 20s. All of life is before us. Um and just we were so young and mm-hmm. and to think that the next day would be um would be a day that we will never never forget mm-hmm. and a day that would change our lives forever 
we um, we got on the road the next morning and we were heading back to to Bozeman. That was our final destination for lunch, and then on to West Yellowstone. And we stopped at a Native American reservation in Browning, Montana. We all switched places. Uh, Scott became the driver. Uh, Ryan was in the front seat. Jeremy and I were in the back seat. And we're going down the, the road. It was a long stretch of highway. We think the air conditioning went out. And um, Jeremy and I had just taken our seatbelts off in the back seat. Ryan was in the front reading a Bob Dylan book. And Scott was driving. And... Um, we don't know exactly what happened, mm-hmm. uh, but we we believe that Scott just fell asleep at, at the wheel. And I just remember being in the back seat, kind of half between sleep, half being awake, and just hearing the hum of the highway. And then the next kind of sequence of events uh, was um, something I'll never forget, uh, hearing the rough bump of the of, of the ground let me know that we are off of the highway. And, um, I remember jarring myself up and then seeing us drive through a big highway sign. And, uh, the next thing I know, um, we're, we're just catapulting across the, the highway on I-90. Mm. And <clears throat> it's interesting how your brain processes these things. Cause this would have been just mere seconds uh, but it seemed like an absolute eternity. Um, the sound of that accident is something that still haunts me to this day. I'll never forget the, the just how ear deafening, just hearing metal crunching as we're just flying across the highway. In that split second moment, I realize I'm not wearing a seatbelt. And um, the next thing I know, I'm flying airborne through the air. Hmm. And... Um, whether I went out through the windshield or when I, whether I went out through the side window, I don't know. But all I do know is I'm flying through the air. And I've, I've often framed it like this. Um, imagine landing on a treadmill of concrete. Um, that's mm. what it was like. That was the sensation of flying and then you're hitting pavement and you're just, mm. you're not stopping. Um, Mm. I finally, I finally came to a halt and it's interesting and I'll share this, but you know, I never blacked out this entire duration of time. Um, and I feel like it is because the Lord wanted me to remember and recall, Mm. um, some of these events and then to even share it now. But I remember, um, basically, Stopping, I'm on the white line of a highway, realizing as things are happening, this is three in the afternoon, it's hot, uh, you can hear the buzz of the highway in the other direction, and your mind just snaps into action, I've got to get off this road. Well, as I'm pulling myself, I'm just realizing I'm not going anywhere. And I, I, I essentially just turn over on my back, and I'm just like, this is it. Um, I'm going to die in the, in the middle of nowhere far from my family, and this is it. Um, I remember in that moment feeling a loneliness like I've never felt in my life. Um, again, you're surrounded kind of by prairie. Um, where am I? What am I doing? What just happened? And just feeling absolutely isolated and alone. Well, it wasn't long after after that that um, God sent um, God sent 
some miracles uh, to this day that I'll never, never forget. Um, w- one such thing that I remember seeing um, lying there was an image of Christ in, in the sky. And hard to summarize what, what, what that was, but um, it was, in essence, a, an image of, of Christ, the thorns, um, suffering. Mm. And I knew in that moment that Christ was suffering with me. It didn't, it didn't fix me, but it gave me a hope that I, I never had. And I did not feel alone like I did before. Wasn't long after that, that Ryan was, um, came running towards me on the highway. And, um, I just remember asking him, uh, where's, where's Jeremy? Mm. And, and I just remember Ryan running to the other side of the Jeep. Jeremy was also ejected from the, from the vehicle. He was laying in the fetal position, kind of blood trickling down the side of his mouth and, and just Ryan coming back. And I just remember looking at him, uh, hands are in the air and he's just, he's just going, Oh God, Oh God, Hmm. Oh God. Um, and, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a lot to think about even, even today, um, that any of us are, are here, Mm -hmm. but, um, Scott was in inside. He was pinned. Um, passerbys are now coming by at the scene and they're trying to help. And they're, um, they had to drag me off to the side of, of the highway. Um, and unlike maybe what you, you think in movies, you know, you have the accident and you're, you're just, you know, next thing you are, you're in the hospital. And, um, I, I had a highway patrolman come up to me and, and say, you know, it, this is going to be a long wait. There's been two other accidents. You're just going to have to wait. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah. Uh, and at that point I, I still was not feeling pain. I think there was just so much adrenaline surging through my veins, but, um, I, I do remember getting the courage up just to look down at my body. And mm. I just, it was pretty brutal. I, I had a lot of, a lot of um, road burn, a lot of injuries. Um, I know the highway patrolman said he thought I had broke my femur, uh, and that was just because I had actually dislocated my knee, so it looked as if you know I had I was I was in bad shape. Mm. Uh, we were all <clears throat> fighting for our lives, um, most literally. Wow. You know, looking back, Trav, just at the force of that of that accident. Um, I mean, the the scene on that highway at mile marker 294, it, it just seemed apocalyptic. Um, all of our gear was just thrown out, strewn across the highway, blood splattered. Um, y- you know, th- this will give you an idea of just the force of kind of some of the carnage of, of, of the accident. Um, we had a one of us had a MacBook computer and its keyboard was peeled back like an orange peel. I mean, we had shirts that had holes in them. I mean, it was, mm. it was just that there was that much force involved. And, and that just goes to show again, just the hand of God that where any of us even survived. Now at that point, um, Jeremy was, um, 
like I said, completely unconscious. Uh, the next day, the Bozeman Chronicle printed an article, front page that said one killed in I-90 crash, uh, referring to Jeremy. Um, but God sent another miracle uh, his way. He was a doctor. There was a doctor that, uh, his name was Dr. Frank, who specialized in um, air resuscitation. He was an ER doctor and quote unquote, just so happened to be behind our vehicle. Him and his wife were vacationing from Michigan. And there he is breathing air into Jeremy's lungs uh, right there on the highway. Um, so at this, at this juncture, um, Scott and Jeremy were both taken uh, to the Bozeman Hospital. And then finally, I had my um, time to leave after maybe 45 minutes to an hour of being on the highway. Um, finally getting to the hospital and, um, I was able to go back and visit the same hospital, uh, a couple years later. And I, I talked to one of the surgeons who had happened to be there and he just said that day was absolutely chaotic. Um, there were multiple accidents that day. Names were getting confused. Who's who. And I remember him saying, you know, we had to identify you guys differently and separate you, you know, from the accident. So we called you the missionary four. And, um, you know, maybe a more proper name would have been the miracle for, because mm. each of us were laying on, on, on beds separated by blue curtains. Um, and, and I just remember that surgeon saying it was a very, very chaotic, dire situation. Mm. Um, and, and then eventually Jeremy was, uh, air flighted to, to Billings, Montana, um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about more of his his recovery. So, kind of sharing a little bit of my then uh, experience of what happened next. So I'm I'm in St. Louis. Jess and I are in St. Louis, and I get <clears throat> that you know that phone call. You you sort of sometimes imaginatively maybe dread or think like, what if one day I get that call of you know some catastrophe? And I remember my brother-in-law, Jeff, calling, and basically it was just, I was out mowing, you know, the grass, and it was just like, Trav, he's like, D Dan and Jeremy and Ryan were in a wreck. Dan and Jeremy may not make it. You know, it was sort of that, that's all we knew. And and then from, you can imagine what the rest of the night would have looked like. Um, what, uh, I actually looked back, and, and so then from there on, at least from my end of things, it sounded like, okay, the little report that we got was that, you know, Dan had suffered catastrophic, you know, wounds and injuries from his thing. And then Jeremy had suffered a devastating traumatic brain injury. And um, the prognosis initially, just even that night, was basically there was confusion around, like, Jeremy is, is basically, I understood it that we were told, like, was going to Billings to, to basically donate his organs. I mean, he's medically alive, but that's basically it. Well, I looked in preparation for this podcast, I look back at actually we have the trauma surgeon notes from him coming into the table. I mean, off the ambulance or whatever, or the jet flight. And basically he, he said it was diffuse axonal shearing injury, one of the worst kind of brain injuries there are because it's basically your, the connections, your brain just getting sheared by the inertia of like a rollover wreck. The trauma surgeon suspected brain death within 24 to 48 hours Another treating surgeon said he's actually very close to brain death. So we go to bed that night basically being told Jeremy's, he's essentially dead. I mean, he's, and so I remember the grief and just like, we've lost our brother, Jeremy. I don't know. 
but um, a bit of confusion. And then all then the next morning, I just remember like still I just had this unsettled you know what is what is the state? So I remember calling the hospital, and um, and and they basically were like, well, he's 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 not. I mean, he's vegetative. We don't, you know, he's extremely dire still. We don't know that he's going to be anything from that, but he's still alive technically. So I'm going to bounce it back to you. Um, but at that point, then the way I understood is mom and dad had the choice. Your two sons are in ICUs. How far is Billings from Bozeman? A couple hours. A couple yeah. hours. So you're basically your two sons are in two ICUs fighting for their life. Your parents, p- picture being parents, which ICU do you go? Do you mm. split up? Do you pick one? Mom and dad ultimately made the decision to, to f- with Jeremy's prognosis, probably thinking that mm. being with you was more crucial to help you pull through, right? So I'm going to bounce it back to you on where, because th- you were in awful shape. Yeah. So, you know, for me, here I am now, um, I waking up um, to blinking lights, to unfamiliar smells and faces and, and just kind of thinking, where am I? And then, uh, then as reality just kind of sets in, you're thinking, wow, this wasn't a, uh, a dream. This is, this is real as you feel some surges of pain here and there in my body. And, um, yeah. So, so at that point, um, the only people at the hospital at that point, uh, at my bedside were my two two uncles, uh, Bruce and Mike, who had come all the way from North Dakota to, to see me, you know, kind of, so I'm kind of looking at their silhouette in, in a dark room. And, um, yeah, I, I had sustained, uh, several injuries, external injuries to my body. Um, all of which were relayed to me, uh, through, through mom and dad when they eventually got there. Um, one of our brothers tells a story, I think it was Brett, who said, you know, when, when dad got off the elevator at Bozeman Deaconess Hospital, you know, in, in one hand he has a bag and some supplies and, and he's in the other is mom's hand and, and he he's wearing his John Deere hat. I mean, getting getting off the elevator and mm. it's just so symbolic of dad, ready to get to work, ready to face the next mountain, ready to fight adversity mm. uh, because our dad... Uh, that was just his life. Um, so much adversity, so many uphill battles. And, and here, here's another one of, of his, of, you know, two of his sons, uh, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, on the verge of death. Um, so one of the surgeons told mom that, um, you know, your, your son is gonna have to re- relearn to walk. He had a posterior dislocation of his left knee, which, which means that um, statistically 85% of people with that injury will have an amputated leg. Mm. Um, road rash. Um, um, you know, I wasn't wearing shoes at the time. So the, the surgeons kind of believe that, you know, based on my injuries, you know, I, I, I kind of landed on my feet. So, you know, being thrown through the air, landing in your feet, well, then you're not wearing shoes on a cement pavement, whatever. And then, I essentially kind of did like the splits. I mean, that's, that's the one way they framed it. So I had an extensive injury that required me to have a colostomy. They had to reroute my, my colon, all these types of things. I had to have a wound vac. And and he said, you know, the, the the wound is something like 
kind of equivalent to something you see on a battlefield. I can stick my mm. fist in it. It's like if you're praying people, you need to be praying because, you know, this is a mm. – there's there could be the potential for a lot of infection. So, mm. so you know, I'm, I'm covered in hand-to-toe with bandages, and, and, you know, these were long, hard, hard days um, in, in the hospital. Um, you know, having to be pulled up every morning to, to put my feet on the ground and then to, to just put one step after the other and, and try to walk, um, was, was, was just, you know, I remember spending my, my 24th birthday in the Bozeman Deaconess hospital. And that was a couple days, you know, after the accident, I remember sitting out in the lobby with, you know, s- some family and there's cake and I'm just, I'm just, you know, how am I going to get through this? And, and then in the back of my mind, where, how's Jeremy doing? How's mm-hmm. Scott doing? How's mm-hmm. Ryan who didn't have any injuries, but he had the internal trauma of just like all the things he witnessed and saw, like, how was he doing? Mm. And, um, and I, I just remember, um, just seeing glimmers of like gospel help. Uh, there, there were, some old couples from some of the churches in Bozeman that would come and visit me, complete strangers, just sitting in my room, um, telling me stories. I remember uh, one of the guys, he was an old rancher, Montana rancher, uh, Dennis Goulet, he said, um, you know, trying to help me, you know, and he's like, Dan, uh, let, let me tell you a story when I broke my pelvis. And then you're thinking, oh, mm-hmm. gosh, you know, this is, yeah, this is helpful. But he said, you know, he, he had a bad break. He was a uh, Anyways, and he's he had relearned to walk, and he said that when the physical therapist would say walk ten steps, I'd always walk one more. And they said, "Why did you do that?" I said, "I, I walked ten for you. I walked one for Jesus." Wow. And again, this is just an old faithful guy who had no business being there, other than he just wants to encourage me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we had uh, one of the other miracles that was huge in the story, pivotal, was. Um, you know, as family were arriving um, at the hospital, there was no place to stay except the um, except the waiting room. And um, uh, a lady by the name of Vicki Hutchins, um, who lived in Bozeman at the time, uh, a friend had called her and said, "You need to go to the hospital." There were there were three boys from Cowpens, South Carolina, that were in an accident. Well, Vicki grew up in Cowpens, hmm. and. So she comes and she is the most hospitable. She, you know, she, she's saying to the family, come, you can stay at my house. They live in a beautiful ranch right out there in the mountains. So as the family is finding, just navigating grief, they're able to find a respite in just God's creation. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. little glimmers of gospel hope that were, were just, that just <laughs> got us all through. Let me just real quick add on to that from, uh, as well, exactly feeling the same thing. Um, so a, a contingent of us went to Billings. So Jess and I, then knowing mom and dad were going to Bozeman for Dan, we flew out, I think maybe the next morning or the ne- following morning to Billings to be with Jeremy. And I think maybe our uncles also then headed to Billings. So we kind of almost had two camps, two ICUs getting, you know, getting some love. And, and anyway, so we were then with Jeremy over there. And I remember to kind of what you're saying is that, there seemed to be some stories that I was hearing about just people that had recovered from brain injuries, like in discussions. Like we, I remember being in the hallway or my mom would come back and share, like she just met someone and 
so-and-so was in this dire brain injury situation and they recover miraculously. And I think I heard about two or three of those stories in this short time period. And I remember my emotion was thinking, okay, either that is a, a wink of God, like hope, like have hope hanging. I've actually providentially placed these people to encourage you. That was a thought or, but if, but, but I, I remember this sinking feeling, if Jeremy never recovers, never pulls out of this, dies, whatever, that was the most, uh, I, I didn't know how I could square my faith with God of like, wh- why would we be put into those moments to hear that? And then maybe Jeremy's lost. And I, I felt like I was already preempting thinking like, I don't know how to reconcile if that happens, but I just, that was an emotion mm. when you said like the hope, but mm. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and Trav and I will share here just as we go down the, 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 the timeline and the narrative, so many other glimmers of, of these hope things that only came from the Lord. You know, my ticket out of the hospital was eventually they would have to do an operation where I wouldn't require the use of anesthesia. And I had had 13 operations. I was um, sedated that many times. And I just remember the the surgeon basically saying, you know, your ticket out of here is we're going to have to change the dressings and this is really going to be painful for you, but it's going to be what we have to do to, to get you to, to, to get, to get out essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course he tells me that at like eight 30 in the morning. So then, you know, you have all day to kind of marinate on that. <laughs> but one of the nurses, um, had many of them, but one of the nurses who, who had listened to that was not a believer. She went out and had a, a, a plaque made for me and she went to the operating room and before the surgery, she actually taped it above the ceiling that would be in view of my eyes as I'm looking up. And the plaque was Psalm 91. Hmm. And again, not a believer, but just knew that this would encourage me. So as I'm getting tugged on and prodded and all these things, I'm looking at Psalm 91 and just feeling a sense of nearness to God like I'd never have felt before, but a nearness, but just so much pain, <laughs> mm. so much uh, hurt. And and come to find out years later that this nurse eventually came to faith and and recently passed away not long ago. Um, but again, only God could, could script, Mm -hmm. um, some of these things and, um, uh, you know, they, they stopped the operation and eventually I had to get sedated again. But, you know, the, the finish line was near for me. And at that point, dad, dad was with me and, uh, had a couple more days at the hospital. And I remember getting on an elevator and I always share this story because this was, this was a conversation that I had with a person that changed my, changed my life. Um, me and dad get on an elevator to the hospital and, um, also, um, at the same floor, another guy gets on in a business suit, has a briefcase and he looks at me and he, he says, so what happened to you? In a just very gruff tone. And I'm holding a wound back. I have a chest plate on, a neck plate on, my legs are completely braced out and I have a cane. And I said I was in a car accident. And he looks at me and he says, were you wearing a seatbelt? And I said, no. And he said, well, I I hope you've had a long time to think about that. Uh, Elevator dings, he gets off. 
And that was a, a brutal moment because, you know, absolute despair kicked in. Um, because this whole time in my mind, I'd been playing this game of the what if game. What if we never would have went to Glacier? What if I was driving? What if we never would have come out here? What It got so bad that it got to the point of what if I was never born? Hmm. And just haunting me, you know, because you have all day to think about these things. But something that God used in this conversation was it showed me that, no, God was in control of this chaos. God, God had a purpose. God had a reason for the suffering that I couldn't really see, but he was going to use it for, for good. And uh, you know, w- with time comes clarity and, you know, it's been almost 15 years now since the accident. I, and I just had this <laughs> memory hit me just the other day in my hospital room in the ICU. Um, um, people would come in and be, their first thing would be, like, wow, it's beautiful because in the, in the view of the room was the mountains hmm. and they would always comment on how beautiful the mountains were. And my thing is I could never see them because my bed was not positioned. I was always looking at the door, Hmm. but I think the kind of the beautiful thing, the metaphor there was, um, I couldn't see the beauty. Other people could, but the backdrop was, was just the stunning display that I couldn't see at the time. And I think it just goes to show like God was putting together this mosaic. He was putting together this story and much of it hinged upon Jeremy and his recovery and his joy. Um, Mm. But again, it's just a a glimmer of in the darkest moments of despair, uh, there was hope on the horizon. Wow. Yeah. It's it's amazing too. Like you said, that, that thought just hits you 15 years later, thinking back, imagining that scene. Wow. So kind of, again, we're kind of chronologically walking the story and, uh, you know, kind of moments of God's presence and providence and miracles and things like that. Um, so at this point, you know, there's really a trajectory here of two stories, you know, it's you and, and, and Jeremy and both your recoveries kind of going in different directions. Um, you continually getting better in a way, slow, but Jeremy, just a mystery, you know, um, because he would have technically, I don't know how long you technically count that you're in a coma, but still basically unresponsive. Um, but he's stable enough to where he then gets flown home to Spartanburg. Um, I know at the time he did not qualify for showing any of the signs that he was up to the level of like a, uh, a big, I don't know what you call, even call it now, but a coma recovery center or whatever, like in Atlanta or Charlotte. Um, at that point, I remember that was devastating of like, cause you're thinking, man, I mean, maybe they have all the tricks and the tools and the technology to help, get him more recovered. I mean, basically you're still completely non-responsive, but just living. Right. So he comes back to Spartanburg and he's in some sort of, at least a, a rehab, at least to where, uh, I don't even remember the things that they were doing there for him, but it, it definitely wasn't some kind of brain injury, you know, kind of extensive recovery program. Well, taking the lead probably from our dad, but also just, you know, growing up on the farm and you just kind of like, I feel like we just had this sense, like we're just going to take matters into our own hands. And I've, I'm wired like that anyway, probably. But I just, I remember doing some research from, it was like a, it was a coma treatment program. I think I saw online, like it was basically their playbook. 
And I learned enough of little things of like the things that they would do. Like you would work on sensory touching. You would maybe have a mirror that you're tracking across his face. You're a phone, familiar things, but sensory, hearing, auditory, all these things that you're kind of trying to spark his brain to kind of like wake up. Like let's, and so we just like, dude, let we, we like almost was like we wrote our program. Like let's mean brothers and friends in Spartanburg. We're like, let's just do this. And I remember it was like, so we have video of like people like tracking with a mirror across Jeremy's face or rubbing his hands with stuff. And I'm telling you, it was like, I don't know again, the timeline here, but it, he starts moving his head. He's tracking, he's hearing sounds. And part of me thinks, I mean, again, this is God's working and, but it was with the proximity of people he knew. And maybe that's a big part of like brain injury recovery is like familiarity. And maybe Jeremy was all I, like, there's a horror of me looking back to this going like, cause I've heard stories of this where people can be comatose apparent can be what appears to be non-responsive and they're literally trapped in their body. And, and maybe what if Jeremy was, and he was actually more aware than we knew. And people are talking about all these dire prognosis mm -hmm. and we're going to, there's a twilight zone episode about that where it's like, you know, they're going to bury this guy in the grave as he's mm -hmm. gone. And the only way he can communicate is a tear drops down and then they see the tear and they like, so anyway, mm -hmm. that's, so that's our experience with Jeremy and Spartanburg. You're still in Montana. Yeah. Uh, and, I'll share this, you know, as, so I'm, I'm finally getting ready to, to fly home. And I just remember the, 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 the last two weeks I spent, um, with this couple, um, on the ranch out, out in the mountains. And, you know, the whole time dad is, is changing my dressings. Um, he's there with me every step of the way. And it was time to, to head to the airport to, to fly. And I remember walking out, had my cane, all that kind of stuff. And my colostomy bag gets caught on the driver's side mirror. And it just rips off. And you can imagine all the stuff that's all over the place. And I, I just remember banging my cane on the ground, like, just out of frustration. Like, I'm just so done. And I just just remember dad's calming presence. Like, it's going to be okay. Hmm. It's going to be okay, son. Let's just, and you know, and then who's cleaning it up? Dad. Hmm. And, you know, we, we, we fly home and, you know, we land in Atlanta and, you know, at this point, the family and rightfully so had, had shielded me a little bit of, of how bad Jeremy was mm -hmm. condition wise. And, you know, I had to do my own recovery, so I, there's no hard feelings, but you know, I knew it was bad. I just didn't know how bad. And the first thing I want to do to get back, let's go to the, the, the hospital to see him. And I just remember getting off the elevator travel is kind of in the, uh, outside the door kind of waiting for me. And I remember as I'm inching closer to that room, I see just these shriveled legs. Um, you know, my, remember my last image of Jeremy was the runner, the athlete, the mm. mountain climber, and now just these shriveled bones that mm. essentially, and I didn't even see his face. I kind of how Trav said, how your knees just kind of, you want to give out. And mm. I didn't fall on the floor, but I wanted to, because mm. I could not believe what I was looking at. You know, a guy who was emaciated, uh, battling, uh, hovering really between life and death still. Mm. 
And um, that was my first glimpse. And then not long after me being there, I remember his coach from high school, Coach Fry, walking into the room and just, what do you say except cry? You know, and just, and just cry. Mm. Um, so, you know, by God's providence, you know, having the size family we do where (laughs) you have a sister, you have, we, we, we were a team. I mean, we, we so had to hold on to each other in these, in these dark, in these dark moments. And then, and then eventually Jeremy did get the ticket to go, uh, to Charlotte restorative. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's interesting because when he went there, um, they had a, a brain injury center and he kind of went back to default of just wasn't responding. Um, you know, and we're thinking, you know, Trav and them did all that, all those exercises. And, and now are we back to square one? It kind of se- seemed like that. Hmm. Um, you would walk in there and Jeremy would just kind of the thousand mile stare. I mean, he's just staring through you, through the roof. I mean, no stimulus, no response. And, um, so a lot of hours sitting by his bed, a lot of commutes up to Charlotte. Well, um, we, we planned a day where, um, Scott and Ryan and myself would all go see Jeremy. And again, this is, this was the first time all four of us since the accident in July, uh, had, had, had went to see him. Uh, this is the, you know, so we're, we're all there. I remember me and Scott walking with canes up the, to go see him. And we just get in his room. And again, Jeremy is just silent looking off. And, you know, I just remember Scott and at this time he had a neck brace on. I just remember him just, all he did was just sit by Jeremy's bed. I just remember him extending his scarred arm and just putting it on Jeremy's shoulder. And just, there's no words. It's just presence and, and then it was soon where we just all of a sudden heard Jeremy start breathing loudly and struggling as if he wanted to say something. And, and this is what we heard. Hi, Scott. And we, we were stunned. Uh, we, we couldn't believe what, what we were hearing. And hmm. you, you kind of wish, man, it wish we would have had an iPhone to record that, but I think it was almost too holy. It was, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't record this a God thing. And I just think we, we just, we just believe that that, you know, that's, that was Jeremy's way of telling Scott, Hey, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. I, I, I forgive you. Don't harbor this. Um, go live your life. Like I'm okay. God's got me. And, and that was the last time Jeremy has said a word in almost 15 years. Yeah, the the one and only. Yeah, the one, one and only. only. Wow. Well, <clears throat> and then, um, so at, at this point, you know, now Jeremy's uh, about set to then make the family set to make a decision for what happens next with Jeremy. Um, you know, there'd be plenty of people at that point, the level of care he would need, um, plenty of people, and there's no judgment here, would, would just say, we, we have to put him in a facility. I mean, there'd just be, you know, the capacity to take that on. But, you know, our dad, you know, just firmly just was, he's coming home. He's coming home. There was no other option. He's coming home. 
and dad. against much opposition. Okay, I mean, yeah. there were people that were like, "No, this is not a good idea." And see, I was in St. Louis, yeah, so I probably yeah, missed a lot yeah. of hearing some of that stuff. But yeah, no, it was so. Um, dad sort of just stood up, planted the flag, you know, and come mm. here we go, you know, and so from there, you know, we'll talk a little about this together. Um, you know, he then, so this is like November of 2009, uh, was the timeline of, so again, the accident was what, July? 09? July of 09. Okay. Yeah. So you can, this is several months later now he's set now to go home. Um, so November of 09 and then the next year, um, now you would have been around Jeremy a lot more and, and all that living here locally, but, um, for, for basically the next year, it, I would describe it as Jeremy is with us. He's living, he's alive. We're super glad he's here. Dad's doing all of his care, which you can't imagine all that, but there's really no, I mean, we got some responsiveness in the rehab to where he could eye track and stuff like that, but that is it. I mean, I would describe Jeremy as almost in a way, like kind of furniture in the room in terms of like his, any interaction. So, I mean, do you remember that? Like that year of just like, he's there, he's there. but that's really it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because after, like I said, after that one word, it was, it was back to, back to square one. I mean, just the thousand yards there and, was breathing, was but was not tracking, was mm-hmm. not engaging to stimulus, was yeah. The, yep. the fingers over the yep. eyes, I mean not nothing. Yeah. Yep. So this is gonna be a theme. You have already touched on this, and it kind of gave me chills thinking back. There's moments now we're having realizations, but I I have thought of this, but I didn't realize I hadn't thought of it in terms of what you described with your friend Scott, but how the when God did something miraculous or just mind-blowing, holy, you know, these things that you described, it, he saved these gifts for people to be together and experience together because that was a profound moment. You guys and what you all needed together that no one else got mm-hmm. to see. You guys needed that together. Yep. You were the ones in the wreck. But then coming out of that, um, our family, a big family, we're in St. Louis. So Christmas is where, you know, common to get together. So it's the following Christmas. So this is December, 2010. So basically a year away from Jeremy coming home since then. And we're all hanging out. And I think, you know, you can recollect we were playing, I think he wants to be a millionaire doing some other stuff, whatever. And we're reading clues off and you could see something turned on in Jeremy's face. Like he knew an answer or something. I just remember the eyes that were kind of like glazed were alive. They were looking, they were like, he was there. You could just tell it in his face. Do you remember any of that? Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, and, and get to the good part. Yeah. So, well, so, well, the, the and you might have a different good part. I mean, uh, what I, I guess I remember on that instance was, was, Someone, you know, brothers telling jokes and inside jokes and things. And he started laughing. Right. Is that what you're right. thinking? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So it was, it was something was kindled in him. And then we hear crystal clear in the, as we're all in the living room, <laughs> we hear Jeremy's voice again, but it wasn't words. It was, it was a laugh. Wow. Yeah. Well, it, it was just you, it, those moments are things that you only can imagine. Yep. But in the moment, you're just like, you almost drop. Yep. So timeline again here. So that was like a, a gift where we were all together gathered as witnesses to see that. Then 
another year passes basically. So Jeremy would have probably been, you know, in a, in a way, then we all knew he's there. He's engaging in ways, but very minimally, there's still no interaction really. He's, he's got no voice at all. He's got really nothing that's where he's contributing in any way to every, anything. Um, but we're all gathered another Christmas beginning part of January of 11, 2011. Uh, my sister, Steph, who's a teacher, um, we, we sort of noticed that there's something like you can see, like he's moving his left foot and he's also moving just parts of his body that like, if he laughs or a joke's funny, or he's, he's affirming something in his way, movements happening. And I think with Steph that, you know, she's smart, providentially, maybe God planned this for her, but just basically like, I wonder if he could spell. She, and I love this too, here's a teacher. I mean, it's just the right situation. I mean, here it is. Uh, grabs like a, a, you know, like a whiteboard or something and like literally manually starts to just go through the alphabet and as he moves his left foot. And lo and behold, he spells, he's spelling stuff. Hmm. And we're just like, oh my gosh. I mean, he can now talk through spelling. But again, we were, witnesses god didn't unlock that or give us that gift of jeremy's recovery until we were all together again mm. and in his timing mm. i mean you know you could why couldn't it have been another year why yeah you have any remembrance a of that absolute gift and i i just remember yeah just just the elation of like yeah. because again what trav was saying about the diffuse axial brain injury it was i mean all we had heard from surgeons and br mm -hmm. brain injury specialists is this is he's a vegetable yeah. i mean there's no there's absolutely no chance yeah. of any of this going to take place so yeah. so that's the backdrop right. so like when you can imagine when we hear the laughter and then you hear the see the finger and the yep. th there's something happening i mean <laughs> boy i mean it, it's hard to put into words it is and, and i think looking back even to the present day like i try to remind myself of this self or remind myself of this sometimes it's like to your point jeremy a shouldn't be here you know the one surgeon he's within hours of brain death two like you said the outcome of that specific he was the lowest grade on the coma glasgow coma scale it's three to 15 he was a three it's the i looked this up it's the lowest there is hmm. um he should not have gone past vegetative i mean you can live but you you can't and he I mean, yeah. so let's fast forward now and kind of land this of, of, of sort of his story and Dan's story, but, um, and kind of the road to recovery. But, um, at some point my sister, you know, you can imagine being Jeremy, you know, where now your friends from high school, college now are moving on, graduating, getting married. Life is completely moving on for everyone else. If you're trapped in your body and you have all these severe limitations, your life seems you're sitting still. Life is still, life is dark. It's all the stuff. Steph asked him one time, um, Jeremy, you have so much joy. How do you have this joy? We just, it, it, we don't understand it. And, so, and he chose in that moment to spell one word. It was Jesus. One word. Um, and I, I want you to say, so, and then at some point, um, Dan had this profound line that and I want you to say this, Dan, but basically um, you, you've, you conceptualize it this way, that there was something in this recovery that we were thinking maybe God would restore. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? You said maybe it would be, so 
can you give us that line of basically what you said? Yeah. You know, we had all kind of, you know, whether we said it out loud or not, brainstormed within our own minds of like, well, yeah, what do we wish Jeremy could get back? You know, what, you know, his running, his ability to talk, his ability to, to walk, you know, what, what is it? And, and God did bring back one thing that to this day just shines brightly. He brought back and restored Jeremy's joy hmm. and joy in, in a circumstance that, that isn't even allowed. But here we have a brother who is laughing hmm. amidst his limitations, amidst just absolute trial. And, and God gave his joy back. Right. And, you know, that reminds me, Trav, you know, as Jeremy begins spelling more sentences, um, I, I asked him, and this is maybe you're in a, uh, two years, maybe after the accident. But I, I said, Jeremy, do you remember the accident? You know, and he's moving his leg. Okay. Which means, okay. Yeah, he does. Could you spell out what you saw? And he spelled out these words, nails, thorns. Jesus was awesome. Wow. The exact same thing that I had seen. Wow. July 21st, 2009, the image of Christ um, that's what Jeremy spelled out. Jeez. Nails, thorns. The same Jesus image. was awesome. So, um, yeah, <laughs> spellbound, right? That's it's hard to even know what to say after that. Um, there, there is another line that that just captures exactly this by the writer Timothy Radcliffe, who says, it, it, sort of in the picture of joy for the Christian. A Christian joy is able to hold sorrow within itself because it is living the story of Christ, which runs from baptism to resurrection, embracing Good Friday as a moment in the journey. The authority of the story will be a joy that is larger than the present and so which can endure its contradiction. Hmm. That's, that's exactly it. The thorns are there too. The, the tomb stone is placed. The the Good Friday, the darkness comes down, but it's not over. So good. The <laughs> kind of where we're going to kind of end this this podcast episode is, <clears throat> um, Jeremy, and we're back to Jeremy's recovery and story, and so. Uh, we both talked about the, so far some with dad, but dad, dad was a hero in this, in, in so many ways. Um, so from basically 2009 until I, I could be wrong here. I want maybe eight years. Was it somewhere in there? Eight. Yeah. Yeah. Eight, would, eight to nine years. We're going to say yeah. dad basically, um, carried the, almost all of the care for Jeremy on his back. I mean, at some point in there, there, there were some shift workers and help. And um, <clears throat> I don't want to also over glamorize that, you know, that's, that's even a great, like, <laughs> because, because it comes yeah. with a cost yeah. and, it, and it certainly came with a cost for uh, the family in ways, but, but on the, the beautiful side of laying a life down, that is what he did for his son. Yeah. I love that Trav. And, you know, w one thing that's really interesting that 
I can now fully kind of realize and looking back, you know, both Trav and I help serve in the care team from time to time, uh, doing help doing Jeremy's care. And now it's, it's very streamlined. There's been years of like perfecting almost the craft of caring for Jeremy. But one of the things that just is mind boggling is how dad had to learn all of that on the fly. Hmm. You know, I mean, here we have a farmer, you know, a, a handyman who is now tasked with the burden of caring for a human being so they don't get bed sores, so they stay out of the hospital, they stay healthy. And, and for him to trial and error mm-hmm. to figure out care right. is, is just, it's, it's profound. It, and that's a good, I'm glad you said that too, because, and we've still seen this to this day, is that the complexity of Jeremy's brain injury like and and some of it's being really proactive with trying to get services again, but so much of this feels like even to this day you're alone still. It's you don't have all of these continued going back and rechecking brain scans and how, prognosis and it it from there on out it just feels like it, it. Yes, you have doctors that try to do their best to help, but it's it's still it, so much of this is on your own to this day it is, and so that makes it even more impressive of just learning on the fly and then basically creating routines and structures and equipment. I mean, dad, you know, was this innovative guy that could fix anything on the farm. And we still to this day have like a certain like thick pad he made for Jeremy in his bed um, that was designed in a way that, that holds in a certain way. He created something that kind of holds and contains his feeding tube, his peg tube that we've even had doctors go like, where did, who thought of that? I mean, this to mm, this day yeah. we have that stuff. Yeah, and there's still images in my mind etched of like when when I lived in Calpens at the time, you know, before I got married and Dad Zoom's care. I mean, there would be mo- mornings at five in the morning where there's a little bitty light on in Jeremy's room and and hear Dad's feeding him and giving his medication. I mean, at five in the morning mm. alone. I mean, yeah. I'm just, you know, it it it's just such a reflection of like. A father and a son, um, mm-hmm. and, and just you know, at its at its finest of, yeah. of laying down your life. Yeah, you're right, and I, and I think too, like the fact that Jeremy is still being cared for with incredible care through people. That's the legacy that Dad said we're going to do this. He's not going to a facility. We are going to do this, and um, so so. Uh, this, you know, we would say this probably shortcutted dad's life. We lost him what, two years ago in May. Yep. Um, dad passed away. He had, you know, uh, late onset dementia. And I'm, I know probably some of that with the stress of this, with all of that kind of probably heightened or sped up, you know, even getting dementia as bad as he did. Mm. And um, so he truly did lay his life down for that. And, and at the end of the day, I mean. Trav, could you, could yep. you. I know this is maybe not, maybe we could save this for the next episode, but just that, um, just that scene mm-hmm. that you, you know, the, just, could you maybe just talk about the, just that day when, yeah. when dad passed in the glory, yeah. what was, what happened? What, what it, what was so special yeah. about that? Yeah, no, I mean, and this is, it just, it's like, it's, it, you talk about holy moments that, so you know, dad then the last probably uh, 
three years of his life, you know, or so, you know, where just dementia just kept accelerating, getting worse and worse. And to the point where he had really even lost the ability to communicate. And now he's getting basically what looks like Jeremy's care in many ways, you know, you know, in a way, I mean, he, he needs help getting fed all of the same things he was doing for his son. And dad was nearing the end, uh, all the signs he's, he was in hospice for over a year and, but he was nearing the end and, you know, it was hard for me to just give up on, on, you know, just feeding him. And I just, anyway, um, I, and, and, and Trav had this idea of it's so, <laughs> wow. He had the idea of let's, let's bring dad to Jeremy's house mm-hmm. and let's put their beds oh, together. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, right next to yeah. each other. Um, not thinking yep. anything of it except, mm-hmm. hey, this would be a great thing. Yep. Little did we know that right. the next day that dad would pass. Yep. And we have this picture of two medical beds next yeah. to each other, dad it's, and Jeremy. It, it's crazy. It, it, it's, it, yeah, it felt looking back like, I mean, you you had this, I think, pull to like also go over to Jeremy with dads on that Saturday before he passed. I had that like idea, like let's bring Dad with Jeremy. No idea why. I mean, I didn't know it was imminent. You know, there, we knew he's probably getting there, but I had no sense. We're down to like hours here. So that Sunday, um, and also our sister Steph had this, you know, kind of prompting in her to like come visit, you know, Dad. And I'll never forget right before we kind of get to what Dan was kind of asking me about, but that last sort of morning of Dad's life, he still got to spend time outside in his wheelchair. And, and I'll never forget that God gave him that gift of being outside. That's what he loved. You know, he was out there. So, okay. So fast forward a couple hours. Now he's back into his room. And um, dad, for the last, I think, year of his life was in Jeremy's old wheelchair. You know, because you can have the regular type of wheelchairs, but Jeremy's got a kind of a medical chair that's souped up. And even though this one was older, it had all these adjustments and it was, you know, you could do so much with it. So dad then is in Jeremy's wheelchair for probably the last year of his life or so when he couldn't walk anymore. And I had left and, you know, I was on the phone, actually my brother Ryan, and I, I came back into dad's room and his face was down and there was kind of some saliva kind of running down his mouth and, you know, I feel like right then and there, I, I just, I think dad had passed as I, I just, I'm in the threshold of the room. I walk in and, you know, it's that surreal moment. I'm trying to do vitals and I just, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm giving as many as I, and I'm just, you know, I think that in the background of what the music going on was the song. It is well with my soul. So that is what ushered him into heaven. And I, and and he left this earth in the last place he left was sitting in Jeremy's wheelchair, mm. the chair he had pushed, the chair he had fixed, fixed the chair he had. It, 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 yep. it was almost like a chariot that he then wrote and got fitting God sending you, you're going to, this is the vehicle that you last occupied. So a little bit more of just kind of ending this with, with Jeremy and, and his story and cares, you know, and then, um, be, 
you know, so dad had several, several years left of his life, you know, where he was living with us and we were caring for him. But the care was transitioned on to my youngest brother, Brett, and his wife, Heidi, and they oversaw Jeremy's um, care and took what dad had started and then grew it and built a system and a team and just really um, did an incredible job to build it into the, really what it is today, you know, of just mm. rotational staff and care and, and a, a binder with all kinds of like incredible like information for medical stuff. And anyway, so that was kind of then, you know, when they gave their their life to that for few years um and then have have you know moved on to to their next chapter and they're in athens and then we have some family friends uh one who was jeremy's caregiver and has loved him tremendously and has been like a sister iran deborah benjamin are now um living with jeremy and yeah Mm. that's yeah one of my favorite kind of stories of iran iran just a huge imposing you know linebacker for the bears, you know, and when Jeremy has to get weighed, you know, um, you know, like that's kind of complicated with a wheelchair. And at, at one point, Eron would lift Jeremy up just with his arms and just get on a scale. And we- I mean, you just can't make it up. I mean, it, it's just, uh, again, a picture of ser- serving, hmm. laying down your life, uh, for, for somebody else. Wow. Well, I'm going to take us out with, and if you have any other closing final thought, Dan, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take us out with what I believe is a fitting quote that, that really summarizes what, you know, because yes, this is a dramatic story of hugely dramatic story of God in, in the story of Dan and Jeremy and the recovery and, and all of this stuff, but God is in all of our stories in this way. You know, sometimes it doesn't look as dramatic, but he is there just as much and, and, and working in the, the tiniest things that we may not see. And there's a Spanish priest who describes what it looks like to kind of, I mean, this to me summarizes what we've kind of talked about in a profound way. But he says that if I am certain of this presence, Jesus, that invades life, I can face any circumstance, any wound, any objection, any repercussion, any attack, because all this opens me up to awaiting the mystery that will become present to suggest the path to me, to accompany me, even in entering darkness, according to a design that is not mine. There's some kind of profound mystery of a design that was not yours, a design that was not Jeremy's, but somehow Mm. there's some mystery in that. Thanks for listening to the podcast today and hanging with us in this conversation. We're going to have a part two coming up where we're going to really talk about this paradox of Jeremy's voice, um, how he ha- he was essentially voiceless, and yet God has used an inaudible voice to be amplified in such a way that it has much more reach and strength and impact than our voices. Some really cool stories of how that's transpired through the years and then up to the present and future of, of where things are with Jeremy and his story. So be sure to check that out. Also, be sure and check out Jeremy's website, joyindespair.com. We have a link for that in the show notes. A lot of cool stuff on there and ways to connect with Jeremy. We'll talk more about that website in the next episode as we talk about his story. I hope this episode has helped you see your life in new ways, maybe think, contemplate, and see and feel God's presence in in maybe even ways you haven't considered and, and are encouraged in that now and going forward. Have an awesome day.